We're in the middle of a little mini-series as we work through our, uh, the whole book of Revelation, looking presently at the three main options for interpreting the thousand years, which is repeated six times in Revelation chapter 20. Thousand years, another word for that, like a hundred years is a century, a thousand years is a millennium. And so there are three different millennial views, which all pertain to how we ought to understand the thousand years in Revelation 20. Last week we looked at premillennialism, and next Sunday morning, God willing, I'm going to be at Berean Bible Church. They've asked me to preach on the doctrine of Christ alone for their Reformation Day celebration, so I won't be here. But God willing, in two weeks, we're going to look at amillennialism, next time I preach in this series. Today, this week, we are looking at what is called post-millennialism. And let's start with a definition from Kenneth Gentry Jr., who is himself a post-millennialist. He says, Post-millennialism expects the proclaiming of the spirit-blessed gospel of Christ Jesus to win the vast majority of human beings to salvation in the present age. Increasing gospel success will finally produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of people and of nations. After an extensive era of such conditions, the Lord will return visibly, bodily and in great glory, ending history with a general with the general resurrection and the general judgment of all humankind. End quote. In other words, in premillennialism, which we looked at last week, Christ returns pre or prior to a golden age, as premillennialist Craig Blomberg puts it. To use the same terminology, in post-millennialism, Christ returns after or post a golden age of gospel success, leading to the prevalence of faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity in this temporal world, including even what I have referred to before as the common kingdom. Whether Barbados, Canada, US, UK, or wherever else, this is the common kingdom that all humans are part of. Post-millennialism asserts that even in the common kingdom, in Gentry's words, faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of people and nations. John MacArthur makes a common, albeit uncharitably articulated, assessment of post-millennialists and post-millennialism when he says in a sermon modestly entitled, Why Every Calvinist Should Be a Premillennialist. Some of them are postmillennialists, although there are fewer and fewer of those. If you read the paper and have your eyes open, and if you're breathing and your body has any temperature at all, you know things are not getting better. But some are holding on to what they have taught in the past, I guess self-preservation dominates their theology at that point. End quote. Look, MacArthur is a server here, and I think disrespectful, employing really what is ad hominem attacks against post-millennialists, which I think we ought not to do. 
when we're dealing with the differing viewpoints of brothers in Christ. Nevertheless, the substance of MacArthur's criticism is a common criticism of post-millennialism, namely that it just, it just doesn't seem realistic to believe that the world is going to get better prior to Christ's return. And that is a reasonable objection or reservation that ought to be addressed. Keith Matheson is the author of Postmillennialism and Eschatology of Hope. Let me allow him to respond to the sort of criticism of postmillennialism that MacArthur and others make. Matheson writes in his introduction, and this is a relatively lengthy quote A defense of postmillennialism? Who would be optimistic enough to write such a book at the end of the 20th century? How could anyone actually believe in postmillennialism? especially in light of two world wars, the Holocaust, the atomic bomb, and ethnic cleansing. Just look around you. How can you read today's newspaper and say that the gospel is going to prevail? My response to questions like these is, how can you read the Bible and say that the gospel is not going to prevail? Since when did the newspaper become the, our authority for doctrine? When God promises to give Abraham a son, everything that his eyes could see told him that he would never have one. Sarah laughed at the promise. Yet, Abraham believed God, and God gave him a son. Similarly, God promised Moses that he would use him to lead the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Initially, Moses was doubtful, but when he finally trusted God and believed the promise, God used him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Then God promised to give them the land of Canaan. But ten of the twelve spies sent into the land doubted the promise and persuaded the people that they could never take the land. Their faithlessness resulted in 40 years of wilderness wandering. But Joshua and Caleb believed the promise and they saw God give Israel the land. God has promised the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against him that all the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord, and that all the families of the nations will worship before Him. Shall we, like Sarah, laugh at the apparently unrealistic nature of the promise? Or shall we, like Abraham, believe the promise of God? Throughout biblical history, God has promised the seemingly impossible. In response, some have placed their trust in what their eyes could see. We have to be realistic, they have said. But others, despite the seeming impossibility of fulfillment, have believed the promises of God. End quote. So this is the way that a post-millennialist would respond to criticisms like MacArthur's, that it just doesn't seem realistic. Post-millennialism argues for the victory of the gospel in this present age, transforming not only individual lives, but whole societies such that it could be legitimately said that Christ is reigning with his saints even in and over the common kingdom. Postmillennialism argues that a long period like this will precede the return of Christ. Though whether that's exactly a thousand years or not is debated intramurally within postmillennialism. Let's follow a similar structure as last week and look first at some notable premillennialists. Apparently, the church father Athanasius was post-millennial in his thinking. And you might not know who that is, but he was the one who debated with Arius 
and developing and articulating and defending Orthodox Christology in the early centuries of the church, which culminated in the articulations of the Council of Nicaea. So post-millennialism is not without early champions in the history of the church as premillennialism was. Likewise, let me call out a few more names that will be well known to some of you. John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, Matthew Henry, and R.C. Sproul. We could add also those of a more theonomic persuasion, such as Jeff Durbin, James White, Greg Bonson, Gary North, R.J. Rajduni. I'm going to move on from this relatively quickly. And if you were listening just now, you should have realized that I kind of subcategorized post-millennialists, that there are those of a more theonomic persuasion and those of a less theonomic persuasion, which raises the issue of variations within post-millennialism. There are post-millennialists who would be what we would call theonomists, or a synonymous term, or roughly synonymous term is reconstructionists, or dominionists. All of these terms are similar. Though perhaps some might like to distinguish even among these terms, which is fair enough. We obviously don't have time to get into all the various nuances and specificities. But they're similar enough to take them as rough and general synonyms for our purposes this morning. And I'm going to henceforth refer to all of these categories as theonomic postmillennialists. Greg Bonson gives voice to the basic premise of theonomy as it pertains to postmillennial eschatology in his book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, when he says the following, If the nation hearkens to God's commandments and statutes in the book of the law with their whole heart, God will bless their labor, procreation, crops, and herds. Deuteronomy 30, verses 6 to 10. If a nation will walk in God's laws, then it will have rain, abundant crops, plenty of food, peace, no warfare, no ravaging beasts, fruitful multiplication, and most blessed of all, the Lord will be their God. Leviticus 26, verses 3 to 13, end quote. Those are Greg Bonson's words. And he goes on to say, quite obviously the conditions promised to a nation which obeys God's law sounds very much like heaven itself, paradise regained. And indeed, it shall only be perfectly fulfilled in that new heavens and earth which will come in the eschaton. But the fact that heavenly conditions can prevail in a nation where God is obeyed should certainly not discourage or dissuade someone from looking for the realization of God's promises in this life to a great extent. God is faithful to His Word and will abundantly bless that nation which honors Him and His law. To refuse to be blessed by God, saying, no, there will be no such blessing before we reach heaven, is manifestly absurd. It represents pessimistic recalcitrance. Why should a people refuse to be blessed? Why should they so refuse, especially since God's Word promises a full blossoming of gospel prosperity and blessing before the return of our Lord. End quote. That's Greg Bonson's articulation of the relationship between theonomy and postmillennialism. So in theonomy, there is 
an expectation that as a nation adopts and implements God's laws, by which they mean not only the Ten Commandments, but also the Old Testament civil laws, or judicial laws, then there will be a corresponding blessing of God upon that nation. And the millennial conditions will be fulfilled largely through a nation's adopting of God's laws. Theonomic post-millennialists then, unsurprisingly, tend to be quite outspoken on social and political issues and movements and emphasize concepts like holding the government accountable to God's civil laws and the boundary of the state's jurisdiction and so forth. This is largely motivated by the eschatological conviction that the millennial conditions that could be described as a golden age, to use Blomberg's phrase, will come about as governments implement righteous rule in deference to and in submission to God's laws, including, in their view, the Old Testament civil or judicial laws. That's theonomic post-millennialism. Non-theonomic post-millennialists put less emphasis on the institutional acceptance and implementation of God's civil laws, and non-theonomic post-millennialists might not think that the Old Testament civil laws are relevant to modern states in any direct way at all. Non-theonomic post-millennialists emphasize the work of the Spirit in regeneration, changing so many hearts through acceptance of the gospel that the expected change of societies which would lead to a golden age happens organically, quite apart from political and social activism, and rather through the simple proclamation of the gospel, which the Spirit makes fruitful, and then people's participation in the ordinary means of grace. As more and more people become believers, they take their new hearts with them into their workplaces and vocations and families and circles of influence, and good things happen organically, leading to millennial conditions. This is the sort of post-millennialist I used to be. As I told you, over the last few years, I've moved away from post-millennialism to amillennialism. But what I used to hold was more or less what I just described, a non-theonomic post-millennialism. But these non-theonomic post-millennialists are not without criticism from theonomic post-millennialists. R.J. Rush Dooney, in The Meaning of Post-Millennialism, God's Plan for Victory, calls post-millennialists like I was antinomian post-millennialists, or post-millennialists who are against God's law. He says, quote, How is Christ's kingdom to come? Scripture is, again, very definite and explicit. The glorious peace and prosperity of Christ's reign will be brought about only as people obey the covenant law. In Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, and all of Scripture, this is plainly stated. There will be peace and prosperity in the land. The enemy will be destroyed and men will be free of evils only if ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them. Leviticus 26.3 The obedience of faith to the law of God produces irresistible blessings. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Deuteronomy 28.2 
On the other hand, disobedience leads to irresistible curses. God's determination of history is thus plainly described in His law. If we believe and obey, then we are blessed and we prosper in Him. If we deny Him and disobey His law, we are cursed and confounded. Antinomian postmillennials deny the God-given way to God's kingdom when they bypass the law. How else is the world going to move from its present depravity into God's order? Are we going to float in on vague prayers and higher life spirituality? The antinomian post-millennials have no answer. End quote. <laughs> so given this sort of hostility and criticism that sometimes comes from the theonomic post-millennial camp towards the non-theonomic post-millennial camp, I think it's fair to say that Theonomic postmillennialism and non-theonomic postmillennialism are distinguishable subcategories. Even if to the non-postmillennialist they may appear simply to be different emphases and different understandings of exactly how the Old Testament civil law relates to the contemporary state and the role it plays in ushering in the expected golden age. And therefore I distinguish between these subcategories of post-millennialism as I distinguish between dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism last week. But likewise, they're similar enough, I think, for our purposes, which is just a brief overview, that we can deal with them both together today. So again, by way of reminder, here's a basic definition of post-millennialism that all, all post-millennialists could agree with, theonomic or not. Postmillennialism expects the proclaiming of the spirit-blessed gospel of Jesus Christ to win the vast majority of human beings to salvation in the present age. Increasing gospel success will finally produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of people and of nations. After an extensive era of such conditions, the Lord will return visibly, bodily, and in great glory, ending history with the general resurrection and the great judgment of all mankind. So let us now examine the biggest positive about post-millennialism drawn from the biblical basis for post-millennialism. Post-millennialism rightly sees that Jesus' kingdom grows and progresses and overcomes obstacles. Moreover, postmillennialism rightly sees, as premillennialism also sees, that the victory of Christ over his enemies must be earthly and tangible in some sense. James White says, as I studied various texts, he goes on to name them, as I studied various texts, I was forced to deal with the divine promise that Christ will triumph, not just in a spiritual sense, which all positions take as a given. So, for example, Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So Psalm 110 teaches that the Messiah's reign will be in the midst of his enemies and that he will subjugate said enemies, making them his footstool. Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 4 
also describes the Messiah's pursuit of justice, quote, as a process rather than a sudden airstrike, as Jeff Durbin put it in a video that I watched this past week. Listen to Isaiah 42, 1-4. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So post-millennialism sees in these passages, these sorts of passages, not, not these alone, but these sorts of passages, a gradualism as the Messiah brings about justice, not becoming discouraged or not fainting until he has accomplished it. The Messiah rules in the midst of his enemies and gradually subjugates them, making them his footstool. This is consistent also with what we see in Matthew 13, 31 to 33, when we see Jesus describing the nature of the kingdom. What does he say? He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So there is a growth, a gradualism that ends up establishing something large and dominant and pervasive. Back in Daniel 2, something similar is described with respect to the Messiah's coming kingdom. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it, that is the stone, struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so not a trace of them could be found. But, and here's the part that's relevant for our study today, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. Daniel goes on to explain that the stone that struck the image and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth is, and I quote, a kingdom that the God of heaven will set up that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Daniel 2, 44. So according to post-millennialism, Jesus' kingdom starts small. Just a few disciples 
who were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. A mustard seed, a stone, but it becomes a large plant, a mountain. Like leaven, it pervades all the earth. And the way that post-millennialists deal with Revelation 20, which is obviously where we find the thousand years, is that they understand the binding of Satan as having already occurred. That the binding of Satan is at the beginning of this period, or, or perhaps some would say at a certain point when the millennium begins, if they don't take the millennium as this whole age, they would understand the binding of Satan to be before Christ's return, in any case, at the outset of the millennial period, however they take that. Satan will be bound, or has been bound, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Revelation 2, 2 and 3. In the parable of the strong man in Mark 3, when Jesus said no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. In the post-millennialist understanding, Satan is the strong man. And Jesus binds him and plunders his house. Again, as John MacArthur pointed out at the beginning, it might be hard to believe that Satan is bound when we look around us and see so much evil. But consider it from a zoomed-out perspective. If we zoom out over the period of, let's say, two and a half thousand years, and we look at the 500 years, for example, before the advent of Christ, we will see that the nations were, were basically in total darkness. We know from Scripture that there were a few Gentile believers, such as Job, Rahab, Naaman, etc., but by and large, the nations were in total darkness outside of Israel. But the gospel has made remarkable progress since Christ's ascension. The gospel has reached all over the globe. I mean, there are, there are as yet unreached people groups. But if you were to say, for example, take a map of the whole world and have it be dark where there is no gospel presence, but say light it up with an LED bulb, where the gospel has been proclaimed and where people have believed, what you would find is that basically before the first coming of Christ Jesus, there would be a few LED lights on in Israel, and outside of Israel, the map would be entirely dark. What you see since the advent of Christ Jesus and His ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost is that LED bulbs have really come on all over the map. And... So there is a very real sense in which the nations are no longer deceived the way that they once were. According to post-millennialism, we ain't seen nothing yet. There is more gospel progress to come. There, is, there are more enemies to be put under Jesus' feet. There is more justice to be established, and so on and so forth. Rest assured, the post-millennialist reminds us from Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be something of a golden age, whether exactly a thousand years or not was, is debated intramurally, and to what extent also is debated intramurally. Like will like 50% of people come 
to genuine faith in Christ or 75% or 99%, right? There's some debate about the exact extent and the exact timeline and so on and so forth. But Jesus shall reign by his word and his spirit through his people who have been resurrected spiritually, which is what post-millennialists understand by the souls of those coming uh, out of the period where the beast was active and whatnot, coming to life and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 4. Jesus shall reign by his word and spirit through his people who have been resurrected spiritually, who have experienced that first resurrection described in Revelation 20. They are the dry bones who live, so to speak, if we can go back to Ezekiel's vision. They have been raised to reign with him. And towards the end of this millennial period, there will be a short period of tribulation after which Jesus shall come. There will be a general, general resurrection of both the just and the unjust at the same time in post-millennialism. There will be the general judgment where everybody is sent to their eternal destiny. And then the eternal state. This is post-millennialism. Now, whether you agree with every facet of post-millennialism and the chronology and the interpretation of Revelation 20 that the post-millennialists would give you, Look, we all ought to agree, irrespective of our eschatology, that the gospel does indeed make progress. What did Jesus say? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We ought not to be cynical or pessimistic about evangelism. We ought not to be defeatists who are constantly anxious and stressed about the apparent success of evil in this world. We ought to remember that Jesus is indeed reigning in some sense and that his kingdom does indeed grow into a plant, a large plant that shelters the birds and into a mountain that fills the earth. However we understand that, whatever we understand that to mean and to be, this is what the Bible tells us, right? Whatever we do with the details, we should recognize the truth of what John Owen observed from his deathbed. He said that I am leaving the ship of the church in a storm. But, well, the great pilot is in it. The loss of a poor under rower will be inconsiderable. Live and pray and hope and wait patiently. And do not despair. The promise stands invincible that I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And I might add... And the promise stands invincible that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, we may go through storms and seasons of ebb as well as seasons of flow, which I would suggest may last hundreds of years. We may spend our whole lives living in a season of ebb, a season of storm, which makes us feel like there's just no way that the gospel could be progressive. I think if we zoom out far enough, we can see that Christ's kingdom is indeed gaining ground. This conviction is central to post-millennialism. It is its best feature in my estimation.
And even if we differ with post-millennialists on the details and outworking of that conviction, which I do, the conviction itself really ought to be embraced by all of us as Christians. With all this in mind, let me just briefly point in the direction of why I am not a post-millennialist anymore, which I will elaborate on in two weeks' time, God willing, since I won't be here next Sunday morning. And then I'll give you some brief guidance on theological triage here, as I did last week, and then we'll bring it to a close. Why I am not a post-millennialist anymore, and this little section will be brief, basically a paragraph. I've come to believe that by God's appointment, by God's appointment, both the kingdom of Christ and what I would call the common kingdom, both operate concurrently in this present age with God's sanction. In other words, I've come to hold what is typically called a two kingdoms view of political theology. God's intention, in my understanding, is not to eradicate the common kingdom, nor is it God's intention, in my understanding, to convert and baptize the common kingdom, if I may put it that way such that the nations become subject to Christ in the manner that post-millennialism envisions. Rather, I believe it is God's plan and purpose for the kingdom of Christ to continue to grow and flourish. I agree with post-millennialists on that point. And that it is doing so presently, even if in pockets, even for generations in certain areas, it may be regressing. Overall, if we zoom out, we see Christ's kingdom continuing to grow and flourish. But I believe that the common kingdom is a common grace for the abundance of people who are not and will never be believers. I believe that it is an institution which God has given for the temporal benefit of all mankind, which is going to persist by God's design in a manner quite distinguishable from Christ's kingdom right up until Christ's return. In other words, I, I believe there will always be the common kingdom and that it will always be quite distinguishable from Christ's kingdom. That it's never going to look pretty similar to Christ's kingdom because of the prevalence of believers and godliness and righteousness and whatnot in it. In fact, I, I believe that it will be strongest and most unchristian at the time of Christ's return, given that there is a prophesied time of tribulation just before the end. So it's only after that, in my estimation, when we will see the earthly manifestation of Christ's dominion. It is only at the seventh trumpet, in my estimation, which I believe signals the return of Christ, that the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever, as Revelation 11.15 puts it. So that's why I'm not a pre, pardon me, that's why I'm not a post-millennialist anymore. And I'll elaborate on that a little bit in a couple weeks, trying to distinguish amillennialism from post-millennialism, as they are markedly similar in some respects. Now some theological triage. As I said last week with respect to premillennialism, so I say again this morning with respect to post-millennialism. I'm not a post-millennialist, but I know that some of you are. And I hope that I've done sufficient justice to the position such that you feel understood and respected. 
Moreover, I hope that the rest of you can see that there is, most importantly, a plausible basis in the Bible for post-millennialism. That even if you don't agree with it, you can see that brethren may be sincerely getting there from their understanding of the Bible and are not just allowing self-preservation to dominate their theology. Secondly, I hope you can see that there are a plethora of respectable Christians throughout Christian history, church history, who have held post-millennialism. And thirdly, that post-millennialism is well within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. And so we may gladly welcome and fellowship as friends, brothers in Christ, and fellow members of the church with those who hold post-millennial positions, even if we don't. And while it is debated in confessional Reformed Baptist circles whether or not confessional standards, namely the 1689, should preclude theonomists from holding office in a confessional Reformed Baptist church, and different local churches land in different places on that. For example, uh, Apologia Church, where James White and Jeff Durbin are, have obviously decided it's within the bounds of confessionalism for them to be theonomic post-millennialists. Other Reformed Baptist churches do not see that as being within the bounds of the 1689. So different Reformed Baptist churches may land in different places on that question. But it's uniformly accepted in Reformed circles that non-theonomic post-millennialism is well within the bounds of Reformed confessionalism, whether the Westminster or the uh, 1689 or whatever. So while our confessional boundaries may possibly preclude at least some post-millennialists from being office bearers in our church, that is pastors and deacons, our standards would certainly not preclude all post-millennialists from holding office in this church. So there's a, a brief bit of theological triage. In conclusion, and in a pan-millennial spirit, let me emphasize that we all ought to believe, irrespective of our millennial positions, that Jesus really will build his church, and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What the earthly outworking of that looks like, and leads to, and results in, and whether that should be understood to be a millennial reign of Christ through his church, prior to his return, we may not all agree. But what a glorious hope we have that Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let us be busy then with the proclamation that Jesus saves, that he lived and died and rose, that sinners like us could be reconciled to him and to one another and gain the glorious hope of life everlasting.